Earlier this month, President Trump was indicted in federal court in Washington, D.C. for conspiring to overturn the 2020 presidential elections. Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last week offering some historical perspective for the latest federal indictment of President Trump. We're posting that piece on the podcast resource page, and because I've already weighed in on the topic, we're departing from our usual We the People format this week for a conversation about the indictment with Judge J. Michael Ludig. We'll focus on the questions I raised in the piece, including what would the framers think of the indictment and the future of American democracy? We'll return to our usual debate format and host a range of diverse perspectives on these important questions in the months ahead. Judge J. Michael Ludig is a member of the National Constitution Center's Board of Trustees. He served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. He previously served as counselor and senior advisor to the Boeing Company, as assistant attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice, counselor to the attorney general, and assistant counsel to the president under Ronald Reagan. Judge Ludig, it is wonderful to have you back on We the People. Good afternoon, Jeff, and thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Judge, this is a historic moment in American history. And uh, for a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal, you told me, I do not believe that there is anything that approaches this in American history. And you went on to say these are the gravest offenses against the United States that an incumbent president could commit save possibly treason. Tell us more about why you reached that grave conclusion. Uh, Jeff, this is uh, uh, not only the most historic moment in political history uh, in in America, it is also destined to be uh, the most infamous sequence of events in all of American history. The events that I'm referring to, of course, are January 6th and the former president's effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election, together with now uh, the trials of of the former president that will uh, proceed between now and 2025. I'm trying to put this in historical context, and that's why I thought it would be worthwhile for us to have this one-on-one conversation. Um, In that Wall Street Journal piece, I thought that an instructive historical analogy to the current moment was the controversy surrounding the election of 1800. And the story begins before the election when the Federalist Congress passed the Sedition Act. It continues with the contested election itself, where, of course, Jefferson and Burr tied and Hamilton persuaded Federalists in Congress to uh, favor Jefferson over Burr. And then it continues with Jefferson's retaliation against his enemies once in office, including indicting Burr for treason. And the the Burr treason trial does seem significant because uh, Jefferson received reports that Burr was conspiring to incite the Western states to secede. Um, Chief Justice Marshall presides over the trial. He's dubious about the indictment legally and tells the jury ultimately that for treason, you need evidence of overt acts of war and two witnesses. So the jury acquits. Jefferson thinks about bringing impeachment charges against Marshall, but is dissuaded from from doing so. 
And ultimately, although American institutions almost break during this remarkable period, they survive because all the major players accept the outcome. Burr and Adams accept the election results. Jefferson accepts the Burr verdict, and the and the Federalist Congress decides not to impeach Marshall. Um, what what do you think that that historical precedent tells us, and what can it teach us moving forward? Well, Jeff, you're in a far better position than I am to 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 know uh, and explain the historical uh, analogs here. Um, but I, I agree with your your assessment in the Wall Street Journal that that the the, the nearest analog uh, is that that you just described. Um, however, I would make this point: uh, that analog is is far, far, far distant from what what we face today in in every respect. Beginning with the the uh, the reason for the indictment, this is a President of the United States of America who attempted to overturn a presidential election that he had lost, knowing that he had lost it, and it entailed literally an attack on the United States Capitol in an effort to prevent the counting of the electoral votes for the presidency of the United States. There is never, there is not in history an analog to that, nor, I believe, will there ever be another analog to what we face today. Add to that that now, for the first time in history, a United States president is being criminally tried for those grave offenses. Those offenses are as grave of offenses uh, as an incumbent president of the United States could commit, save possibly treason. But as I have said over the past month or two, while these are not charges of, of treason, under the Constitution's definition of treason, these offenses partake of uh, a betrayal of the United States, which is the, the essence of treason. Add to all of this, Jeff, perhaps the most relevant fact now in all of history is that the former president provoked the Department of Justice to indict him and prosecute him and try him for these offenses. How do we know that? Because the last thing that we in America ever, ever want, Jeff, is to prosecute a president of the United States of America. There is not a doubt in my mind that Donald Trump would have never been indicted and prosecuted even for these grave offenses had he not chosen to be indicted by provoking the Department of Justice over the past two and a half years since January 6th. Needless to say, never acknowledging even 
that the uh, the events of January 6th were wrong, and he has persisted in those claims to this very day. That's why I believe that this prosecution and this trial had to come about, uh, lest the former president succeed in making a mockery out of America, the Constitution of the United States, and the rule of law. Well, let's talk about the arguments on the other side. Uh, Critics of the indictment argue that even if uh, President Trump did attempt to overturn the election, his efforts weren't illegal as long as he legitimately believed that the election had been stolen. And Alan Dershowitz made that point in the Daily Mail. He said, in order to establish the underlying charges, the government would have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Trump himself actually knew and believed he'd lost the election fair and square. I doubt they can prove that. Um, is, is that a defense likely to succeed before the jury? Well, th- that argument is, is just incorrect, uh, Jeff. Um, it's mistaken. It's mistaken as a matter of law for these reasons. Jack Smith and the Department of Justice were well aware that the, that the, the potential defense by the former president would be the First Amendment. They scrupulously wrote this indictment around that First Amendment defense so as to charge the the former president solely with conduct, conduct that has nothing whatsoever to do with the former president's speech. And indeed, It is a matter of historical significance that this indictment in its opening paragraphs explained just that, that the president was not being charged in any way at all for his speech. Now, by way of slight digression, Jeff, I believe and of course, I don't know, and, and we, we may never know, but I believe that, that it's for the First Amendment reasons that, the, that Jack Smith did not charge the former president with an insurrection against the United States of America. And, and remember, the former president could have been charged under, under, uh, under the insurrection statute if he only aided or supported that insurrection, he would be chargeable under that statute without having himself actually incited the insurrection. My point here being, Jack Smith and the Department of Justice could have charged the former president with with insurrection. And... And in and it could have proven its case without any question, but it would have required uh, the United States of America to address and convince a jury uh, that the president's speech 
was irrelevant to that uh, charge of an insurrection. How much of the substance of the conspiracy charges will turn on whether or not President Trump understood that he'd lost the election? The indictment does quote President Trump in a couple of cases for appearing to acknowledge that he lost the election when, when Vice President Pence refused to overturn the election, thanks in part to your advice. Uh, Trump said you're too honest uh, during a national security briefing when Trump agreed not to take action. He said, you're right, it's too late for us. We're going to give that to the next guy. And there's another instance where the acting attorney general told Trump that the DOJ wouldn't change the outcome. And, and Trump replied, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Will his acquittal or conviction turn on whether the jury believes that statements like that indicate that he understood he lost or not? Well, the the the... <clears throat> state of mind, if you will, of the former president is important and even centrally important. But there is an overwhelming amount of evidence, some of which you just described, to establish that the former president knew that he had lost the election or I believe, in the words of, of the law, Jeff, reasonably understood that he had lost the election. The same arguments will be made with respect to the former president's reliance on counsel. Uh, and for the same reasons and, and additional reasons, uh, that defense will not carry the day under the, under the law. Some have suggested that because of the former president's elusive state of mind, that the indictment is less strong than the federal indictment for obstruction of justice, and therefore uh, that it shouldn't have been brought. Jack Goldsmith of Harvard Law School uh, wrote a piece recently in the New York Times suggesting that given the extraordinarily fraught moment for American institutions, the attempt by both sides to delegitimize the courts, and the timing of the indictment, which Goldsmith describes as delayed uh, by a year and now uh, politically questionable, uh, for all these reasons, the department should have erred on the side of caution and not brought the indictment. Professor Goldsmith is, is a professor of law at Harvard University and a, and a longtime friend of mine. Um, Jack clerked on the Fourth Circuit when I was when I was there with a, a colleague of mine, and we've been friends ever since and even worked together uh, closely uh, over the past couple of years. And I did read Jack's essay in the, in the New York Times this morning. Um, uh, I disagree with, with, with literally every single analytical point that, that, uh, that uh, Jack makes and, and, uh, in fact, uh, as you know, I, I actually felt the need to 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 explain that in a tweet uh, this morning uh, before Jack's essay could quote gain traction in the mind of, of thinking Americans. Okay, uh, but without 
going into the details, uh, I, I critiqued his essay at, at the highest level of generality, as we say, uh, in this way. Jack, Jack essentially said that this is uh, the prosecution of the former president is, is catastrophic for uh, uh, America, regardless whether uh, he is ultimately uh, convicted or acquitted. And my response this morning to, to that overarching point of his was that this indictment and, and this prosecution, this trial, uh, not only was forced upon the United States of America um, by Donald Trump, but this prosecution and trial had to take place. It had to take place uh, in order to vindicate uh, the Constitution of the United States and the rule of law in America. Now, th now here's, a, here's a thought that I, I've not had an opportunity to say in, in, in my other uh, public appearances. This is not a question of the equal application of the law to all citizens in America. As you know, Jeff, the potential prosecution of, of, a, of a sitting or former president of the United States of America is, is um, vastly different, actually, than the application of the law, even that same law, to the ordinary citizen. From that, I would say that this is an extraordinary prosecution, to be sure. But there is no president in the history of America, and there will be no president in the future in America who would have even contemplated these grave offenses against the United States. And for that reason, this particular prosecution and trial of this particular president of the United States, it had to occur in order to uh, that he not be allowed to get away with making a mockery out of America, our constitution, and our rule of law. And it's for that reason that you have concluded that it's more important for the constitution that the former president be charged with these offenses than that he'd be convicted for them. I'm reading from your commentary. Whatever the consequences of either a conviction or an acquittal will prove Absolutely, to be. Absolutely, Jeff, and I'm as certain of that for America as I have been of anything that I've ever said or, or, or thought. Uh, this is a singular and infamous moment 
in American history. And because it is such in American history, it is a singular and infamous uh, event and events in world history also. I've, I've, I now recall uh, when I uh, spoke to Anderson Cooper on CNN the night of the indictment, um, I said that the world will never again be inspired by American democracy in the way that it has been inspired since our founding uh, almost 250 years ago. Grave words. And of course, the survival of our constitutional republic will turn on whether or not people of different perspectives can now unite to support the legitimacy of the rule of law. And I want to talk with you about that now. And I thought it'd be helpful for us to have this one-on-one conversation because the the stakes are so high. Uh, It's an open question about whether or not both sides will in fact accept the legitimacy of the proceedings. We're seeing worrying signs, of course, by the former president and this council to call the proceedings legitimacy into question, but also by Republican candidates uh, to question the legitimacy of the courts. And on the other side, we're, we're seeing some of that court bashing, of course, by Democrats in their, in their criticisms of the U.S. Supreme Court. And then the political effects of this indictment, which are hard to, for us to envision, may further call the legitimacy of the courts into question. Think through with me, please, how um, the legitimacy of the courts can survive in the face of these grave challenges. Well, the, the, you've posed two questions there, at least, and, and I'll save for, for for a moment the, the second about the federal judiciary. But to your first question, to no surprise, and 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 to everyone's expectation, uh, we, we should have expected uh, the very reaction that we're getting now from the former president. And, and his allies, and in particular, to your point, the Republican candidates for the presidency, uh, none of whom is running against Donald Trump for the presidency in 2024, and all of whom are running for Donald Trump in 2024 up to now. Why should we have expected and not be unsurprised? Because this is what the former president has done since the day that he assumed office in in, in 2016. Uh, He's as viciously attacked uh, and assaulted um, the institutions of, of, of of America's uh, of American law and the institutions of, of American democracy and 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 our institutions of law enforcement uh and he's he's continued that uh to a fairly well uh, since he left office in 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 January of 2021 
certainly his Republican Party and, and, and his Republican allies uh, have followed suit. They're, they're taking his lead. So that when this indictment came down, and and uh, and frankly, when the indictment came down for the uh, the Mar-a-Lago classified documents uh, uh, offense, is at that point, at the latest, although it had been planned for years, the entire Republican Party turned and began campaigning for the 2024 presidency on a platform that the American government is corrupt and uh, and its institutions are corrupt uh, from uh, the FBI to the Department of Justice to uh, to the federal judiciary. You know, as I think about it now, remember, uh, Donald Trump started off his presidency by uh, just, I don't even know what the words are, um, by his attacks on the federal judiciary, uh, uh, you know, when with respect to his, the, his immigration initiatives and things like that. So this is what he's done his whole life. But for present purposes, you know, all Americans know that this is exactly what he's done for seven plus years now. Uh, he's not about to change. Uh, the that's tragic in itself, but it's all the more tragic because he has uh, brought along the Republican Party, um, you know, uh, with him. And so the next year and a half before the 2024 presidential election is going to be an embarrassing spectacle in and for the United States of America, uh, wherein for the first time in history, an American president is on criminal trial for the grave offenses against the United States at the same time, the very same time that he is the presumptive Republican Party nominee running for the presidency in 2024. These are just the reasons uh, why I know that there has never been anything like this in, in, in American history and that there never will be again, Jeff. Jack Goldsmith makes points that he says are not what about ism points, but says they're the context in which a large part of the country will fairly judge the legitimacy of the election fraud prosecution. And Goldsmith notes the backdrop of earlier unfairness in the Justice Department's investigations of Mr. Trump's connection to Russia, uh, the discredited Steele dossier, the perceived unfairness in the department's treatment of Mr. Biden's son, Hunter. And he says that uh, this is all before the Trump forces exaggerate and inflame the context without, of course, getting into the substance of these points. Um, it is undoubtedly true that both sides are perceiving their antagonists um, as having politicized the law. And that makes this a remarkably fraught time for American democracy. How, and this, this was my not only my second question, but the urgent mission of the National Constitution Center to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution 
on a nonpartisan basis, how can the National Constitution Center help maintain uh, nonpartisan respect for the legitimacy of the rule of law at a time when uh, there's no more urgent uh, necessity facing the country? I think, Jeff, that the National Constitution Center can actually use Professor Goldsmith's analysis as a counterpoint going forward for the center's uh, explanation of, of the constitutional imperative and significance of, 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 of this, this trial. Um, the entire premise and presupposition of, of Professor Goldsmith's New York Times essay is that this momentous decision should have been made on the basis of the public's political reaction to it. That is the fundamental flaw in his thinking and in the political thinking of the politicians. Thus, from your perspective at the National Constitutional Center, the question is not at all what the public's political reaction to these indictments is, or should have been, or should be, but rather the only question from our standpoint of those uh, of us concerned only with the Constitution and the rule of law, whether this president should have been charged and tried for these crimes. Um, if, if the decision were made on any other basis, it would contradict the founding fathers' views in anticipation of exactly this trial by this president today. And I've learned that from you, Jeff. Uh, there's no one more knowledgeable or more eloquent about, uh, about matters of the founding fathers and their thinking about the Constitution than you. That's certainly too generous, but thank you so much. And thank you for your incredible service calling attention to these issues around the country and also on the NCC board. But back to Goldsmith's essay, what about his charge of whataboutism? Jeff, let me, uh, you know, um, circle back around to a, a, another part of your your good question. And that was the um, whataboutism, particularly with respect to Hunter Biden. Uh, uh, as you know, I uh, had the great privilege of of, of having an interview by the by the inestimable Judy Woodruff yesterday for several hours, and she asked me this question uh, about the what aboutism specifically with respect to uh, Hunter Biden, and, and this is what I said: the the matters of Hunter Biden and Donald Trump are non sequiturs. Uh, in the sense that that 
there is no comparison whatsoever uh, between the two in any respect at all. To begin with, Donald Trump was a president of the United States of America. And he attempted to overturn a presidential election. That's as grave an offense as can be committed by an incumbent president, save treason, as I suggested. Very, very importantly, from the day that he did that, two and a half years ago, he has persisted in the in his claim that he won that election and it was stolen from him by we don't know who but clearly by America and America's government and the de- democrats okay uh and for two and a half years those persistent Claims by a former president of the United States of America have corrupted American democracy. They have corrupted Americans' elections. They have corrupted the rule of law in America. So, today, millions upon millions of Americans no longer believe in American democracy nor do they any longer believe in the rule of law. But Jeff, many of those same people no longer believe in the Constitution of the United States or even America as it has been for 230 years. That brings me to another response that to, to... a question that, that Judy asked me yesterday. This is fundamental stuff, Jim. Um, the question arose from a recent uh, um, piece about John Eastman. Uh, it, the, it was titled, sensationally titled, something to the effect that that John Eastman now admits that they were trying to overturn the United States government. Okay. So I, I, I of course looked at that quickly. And and it was not that per se at all. But it was this, and this is fundamental, Jeff. Um what John was saying in whatever context, and I don't don't remember it and it doesn't matter was he was quoting from the Declaration of Independence, saying that the the Declaration, we the people, saying that, that, you know, that there comes a point at which abuse of power is intolerable. And of course, you you know exactly the the words. Um, and, And now... We'll cut away from that and from this article and just you and me talk. Um, that, of course, was we Americans 
declaring our independence from, from the king and undertaking a revolution in order to establish our independence and create our own United States of America. At bottom, but fundamentally at bottom of of the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election was the idea in execution of a revolution against the United States government. And this will sound paradoxical. You will understand it. The most thoughtful people on the, the radical right, but they are thoughtful, intelligent people, Jeff, believe that that's what was necessary on January 6th, that the abuse of power by the United States government had come to such a point that it was intolerable, requiring a, quote, revolution to overturn the government of the United States. And uh, I spell that out, unfortunately, not quite as uh, eloquently as I just did to Judy yesterday. But, but that is what we are talking about. That's remarkable, Judge. And of course, uh, John Eastman was your former law clerk. You've assailed him for advancing this far-flung legal theory that as you've just suggested, is, is tantamount to a, a, a declaration of, of revolution. And it really does call to mind the periods around the crucial election of 1860 when Southern secessionists, invoking the same nullification arguments that Thomas Jefferson had originally made to oppose the Sedition Acts, said that they could secede from the Union, uh, invoking the original right of revolution. Are we in a similarly dangerous existential moment for American democracy? You're exactly right in, in, in that an analogy, uh, Jeff. Um, and, and, and yes, we are at that same moment uh, today. Now, you'll remember um, that in my testimony before Congress, uh, I laced throughout allusions to the American Civil War. Uh, I had been reading and studying about the Civil War uh, for months and months uh, for the purpose of, of testifying before Congress. Uh, and, uh, and I got... You know me, and I always tell you, I, I really don't know any of this stuff, Jeff. I, I'm I'm only smart enough to go learn it from the people who do know it. And that's what I did in that instance. And so 
I read the the historians and the scholars about the Civil War, and and especially those historians and scholars uh, of the Civil War who were then a year and a half ago saying that we are on the verge of civil war. And I uh, came to the same conclusion. Even so, uh, I was not prepared to, to tell the nation that we were in fact on the verge of civil war. And I would never have said anything like that. Um, but what I did say is that as Americans, we do not want uh, our legacy to be even a figurative civil war. You have been a prophet on this question. You, you've been crying in the wilderness like Jeremiah about the grave existential dangers to American democracy and you did indeed raise this analogy of civil war in your testimony. Let's now talk about moving forward. In the 19th century, civil war was averted after the election of 1800 because of the major institutional players accepted the legitimacy of the institutions. But, it, but the war came, as Lincoln said, when the various sides would not accept the legitimacy of those institutions. It seems an open question about what will happen today. What do you think and, and, and what can be done to avert uh, disunion? Well, I've, I've, I've agonized over this, Jeff, for two years now. And sitting here even today, I, I don't have an answer. Uh, a, 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 an operational, practical answer, if you will. But I do know I do know the answer, you know, uh, in concept, uh, and this is what I said to the Congress in my testimony. Um, America has to be led out of 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 this and away from this uh, abyss by someone or some number of people uh, under the constitution itself literally the those that person or those people are are supposed to be our elected representatives in both the congress and 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 the white house this is not a role the constitutionally committed or even contemplated for the Supreme Court of the United States. In fact, it's just the opposite. Um, but it is the responsibility of the Congress of the United States and the President of the United States of America to lead America out of this wilderness uh, and away from the Civil War, figuratively or literally, uh, that appears on the horizon. I have said 
and, and I said in my testimony, the problem today is that there is no one person, but neither is there any uh, collection of, of persons who have the uh, moral authority, the courage, and the will to stand before the American people and say America is in peril and we must not continue down the path that we are we are headed today lest this union will be dissolved um but Judy asked me this same question yesterday Jeff and and I said there is no such person today that is such an urgently important uh, warning about the importance of leadership at such times. Uh, Alexander Hamilton did warn of exactly this moment. Uh, he said in 1790, the only path to a subversion of the Republican system of government is by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. And then he warned of demagogues. He said, when a man unprincipled in private life Desperate in his fortunes, bold in his temper, is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity. He may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Hamilton himself exerted the kind of leadership you describe after the election of 1800 when, fearing Burr, a demagogue, he favored his rival, Jefferson, who he thought was less of a threat to the republic. You suggest that there's no Hamilton and indeed no Lincoln today to lead us. You also suggested that it could be groups of people, and indeed it was uh, the Senate led by Cicero that rejected the demagoguery of Catiline and saved the Roman Republic. Today, our, our political leaders in the Senate seem unable to exercise that kind of leadership. Well, then what is to be done? There is no Abraham Lincoln in America today. There is no Alexander Hamilton in America today. Every leader in America today is closer to being the opposite of those two than they are to being those two. In fact, I, you know, with your quoted reference to demagogues, it reminded me that in speeches uh, throughout this past year, you know, I've, I've quoted Lincoln and, and said that the first thing we Americans must do is take back our, our country from the demagogues. Uh, and then once having done that, uh, we must decide uh, who we are as Americans and what we want our America to be. But the first matter of urgency is to disenthrall ourselves from the demagogues and then decide anew as our forefathers and foremothers did 
250 years ago uh, what we want America to be. Disenthrall is the perfect word. And it's so instructive to learn from history. And you're right to invoke Lincoln. And of course, Lincoln, in one of his earliest speeches, warned of demagogues, in particular, the idea of what he called uh, the, the man who was led by distinction, which would be his paramount object, although he would willingly perhaps more so acquire it by doing good as harm, yet that opportunity being passed, nothing left to be done in the way of building up, he would set boldly to the task of pulling down. And in that address to the Springfield Lyceum, Lincoln said that the solution was adherence to the rule of law that had to be taught every prattling child as a kind of civil religion, as an opposition to mob rule. And judge what one thing that the Constitution Center can do, which we're doing now, is to, is to learn from history. And by uh, learning from Hamilton and Lincoln and, to, and reminding ourselves of the constitutional structures that are meant to preserve us from demagogues, we can try to inspire our fellow citizens to adhere to the rule of law. And that's why I think this conversation is so important. What, and we, that's why we're going to continue to, to have these conversations. What more can we learn from history as we wrap up this meaningful conversation um, that may guide us in the precarious months ahead? Jeff, the National Constitution Center is the only person, organization, or institution in the United States today that can possibly lead America out of the wilderness and out of the way of the figurative or literal civil war that appears on the horizon. Judge Michael Ludig, for inspiring Americans to adhere to the ideals of the U.S. Constitution. Thank you so much, and I look forward to reconvening this conversation with Americans of all perspectives in the crucially important months ahead. Judge, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastashari. Research was provided by Yara Dorese, Lana Ulrich, Samson Mastashari, and Connor Rust. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, and the engagement, and the patriotism of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.